Well, I want to welcome everybody here at the Bellingham campus. A special welcome to those of you who are visiting us at our Ferndale and Sun Valley campuses. We're glad that you guys are here with us as well. And as we kind of head into June and then July and August, summer's coming, so I'm going to give you your church pep talk, okay? Because this is the way it kind of goes in Whatcom County and in the ex- it just kind of goes everywhere, right? Memorial Day hits and people just think that your spiritual growth can take a hiatus. And, you know, we'll see, you, we'll see you again, you know, on Labor Day weekend, and that'll be great. And in between that three months, just a bunch of people just kind of disappear. And what I want to tell you is this. Your spiritual growth never, ever takes a break. In fact, let me be as blunt as I can. You're not done until you're dead. Does that make sense? Okay. You're not done until you're dead which means there's always something to learn, something to experience. And sometimes coming to church during the summer is not so you can get something. Sometimes it's so you can give something. To meet somebody in the commons, in Sudden Valley or Ferndale, wherever, and be that kind listening ear, that, that, the smile that just says, I'm glad that you're here and you matter to God. And because you matter to God, you matter to me too. It's an important time all the way through the summer. I'm excited about June. We're going to do a bunch of different variety stuff. You're going to hear, get to hear from Pastor Brian McSwan for a couple weeks. And if you know BMAC, the guy just lights it up. He's our pastor at Ecclesia. And we're going to have Brian's going to be a part of our June teaching team. And then July and August, I'm excited about because I love to tell stories. And we've picked the 10 best stories from the Old Testament. I'm going to teach them to the big people while the kids on the other side of the wall are learning them with the little people. And you're going to have lots to talk about when you go home. We're going to talk about Jonah, Abraham. I mean, all the big stories of the Old Testament. It's going to be a great time. And I just want to encourage you to be here every single weekend. Just be here. Make it a priority. I want to encourage you to be faithful in your attendance, faithful in your giving, faithful in your service. Don't just check out for the whole summer. You could miss some of the best stuff that we've ever done. So I just want to encourage you to be a part of it. Don't miss it. You're not done until you're dead. There you go. Okay. So over the next couple of weeks, all across this country, there's going to be graduation exercises going on. People are going to be graduating from high school. They're going to be graduating from college. They're going to be graduating from institutions all over the place. And, and it's going to be a wonderful time. Young people, just so you know, graduation is a fancy term for sitting in a very hot gymnasium in a Batman outfit for three to five hours listening to people who are going to tell you exactly how to live your life while you wait for a piece of paper, okay? Okay. That's what graduation is. And some of you are like, you just wrecked it for me. Well, that's the way I remember it. I don't remember anything about my graduations other than the fact that it was hot, it was uncomfortable, and the guy up front just kept talking and talking and talking and talking. And then they went through this list of people. And it's like, by the time we got to the R's, I was done. It's just like, give me my piece of paper and let me leave, okay? As a part of your graduation exercise, someone is going to do a commencement address, okay? I'm going to do a commencement address this weekend, okay? And the reason we're going to do that is because every day is a brand new beginning. Have you ever noticed, you'd think because you're graduating from something, like it would be the end, right? The word commencement means beginning. You're starting the rest of your life. High school students, You're going to graduate, college students, you're going to graduate, and then the rest of your life is going to start, and it starts with this, get a job. (laughs) Go with that, all right? It's like tomorrow. It's like, you remember, you're going to graduate, and the next day it's like, ah, 
I thought it was all done. No, it's just started. It's just the beginning of so many things. So I'm going to give you a commencement address this weekend. And and the reason I want to give you this kind of commencement address is because it's going to be very different than the one you're normally going to hear. See, the one you're normally going to hear is people are going to tell you to go out there and pursue the American dream, actualize your potential, be all you can be, get a job, make money. And if you do all of that stuff, you're going to get to experience this beautiful word, happiness. They're going to tell you it's all about being happy. Just pursue the word happy. Go and get all of this really cool stuff and and then someday it's going to be awesome because you will be happy. The pursuit of the word happiness is actually what I call the new religion of today. Okay? Sociologists Christian Smith and Melinda Lundquist Denton, they wrote a book called Soul Searching, The Religious and Spiritual Lives of American Teenagers. And they actually coined a phrase where they named the new religion of today. Here's the name. Modern therapeutic deism. Isn't that nice? Boy, that's deep, right? You can say we went deep. Modern therapeutic deism. It sounds technical. Let me tell you what the new religion of today believes, okay? It believes, number one, that a God actually exists. So they got that part right. A God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth. So they believe in a God of some kind, but the problem is they think you can just pick whatever God you want to. Give him any name you want to, it's all good. Secondly, they believe God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other, as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. So they believe, basically, God wants you to be nice because that makes God happy. And if God's happy, you should be happy too. Thirdly, they believe the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about yourself. That's why the word therapy is in there. You just keep going to therapy, and eventually you're just going to start feeling good about yourself because it's all about you. You're the center of the universe, and your universe is a happy place where people just walk up and give you things because you're just that special. And we wonder why people feel entitled, right? Fourthly, they believe God doesn't need to be particularly involved in anyone's life except, of course, when God is needed to solve a problem. That's when God's supposed to show up. So basically, in modern therapeutic deism, God's your Google, right? You just type in a question, he pops out an answer, and if you don't get the answer that you want, it's a bad Google right there, you know? And number five, modern therapeutic deism believes that good people go to heaven when they die. It has to, right? Of course good people go to heaven when they die, because if... if, Well, if there was an alternative to that, that would take us from our happy place and that would not be good because, of course, all of our life is about being happy. And if good, happy people don't get to go to heaven, then we've got a really big issue with God and Google, right? (laughs) Happiness is the pursuit of so many people. And it just sounds so good, doesn't it? Just be happy and that'll make God happy and everybody's going to be happy and everybody's going to get in in the end. It's going to be just awesome sounds good. It feels good. And it has the veneer of being so fulfilling. But here's the problem. I hate to break this to you. Life isn't always happy. Shocking, right? But it's not. It's not always happy. When life's not happy, the only thing you possess that can ground you is truth. Truth is where hope comes from. And hope actually does give us this thing that's better than happiness. It's called joy. 
This weekend, I want to give you a commencement address that I know will actually stand you in good stead for the rest of your life because it comes straight out of Scripture and you can't get any better than that. So you can open your Bible, your outline, or your app to Colossians chapter 1. If you can't find it, that's okay. It's behind me. Okay? So here at the Bellingham campus, it's literally the whole back wall. That is Colossians 1, verses 15 through 18, and we are literally going to start in that top corner or in the top corner of your outline, and we're going to walk through it phrase by phrase by phrase because this is some, there it is, because this is some of the best stuff that you're ever going to hear that the Apostle Paul wrote, okay? The Bible starts with this words. Here it goes. Colossians 1, 15 through 18. He, stop right there. Okay? That's as far as we're going for right now. He is Jesus. That's the blank in your outline. He is Jesus. Not Buddha, not Muhammad, not Obi-Wan Kenobi, and most certainly not you. Okay? Not me either. He is Jesus, the Son of God and God the Son, the one who gave up royalty and privilege and perfection to come here as a humble servant sacrifice to pay a debt of sin I couldn't pay for myself just so I could have a relationship with the one true God in heaven. That's who he is. He is, that was weak, okay? I already lost you and we're only one word in. Ferndale, Sun Valley, you're going to pick me up, right? He is, there we go, okay? He is Jesus. It goes on. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Stop right there. We're going to review. Okay, ready? He is. And this verse says Jesus is God. Jesus is God. The Bible says in the beginning was the Word. That Word literally means Jesus. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. It doesn't say He was a God. It says He actually was God. That means as part of the Trinity, Jesus has always existed. He's always been. He was there in creation. He always was, always is, and always will be. And if you actually know him, that should make you happy. It's always been a part of the story from beginning to end. Jesus is God. And then it goes on and says that Jesus is the image of God. Okay? The word image there, very, very, very specific. Let me see if I can explain it to you. This is an image of the Mona Lisa, okay? This is not the Mona Lisa, but I picked her because it looks like she just graduated, doesn't it, right? Okay? From something, all right? She's even got like the Batman outfit on, okay? All right? Missing the hat, okay? This is not the real Mona Lisa. If this was the Mona Lisa, I would sell it on eBay and the proceeds would make me happy, right? Okay? Wrong, all right? This is a copy. It's not the real thing. My assistant, Diane, went to the internet, right-clicked on Mona Lisa, printed, and that's what popped out, okay? It's not the real thing. It's just a copy. When Paul uses the word image here, he's not referring to Jesus being some kind of cheap reproduction of God. Jesus is not kind of like God. Jesus is not sort of like God. Paul is saying... Jesus is God, that he's actually the original. The word image here literally means manifestation. Now, I want you to get this, okay? This is not the Mona Lisa. If you go to the Louvre in Paris and see a picture hanging on the wall, that's not the real Mona Lisa either. That's a picture of her. 
Paul is using a word here that's saying, if Mona manifested herself, walked up on the stage right now and said, I'd like to tell you what I was smiling about in that picture. That would be a manifestation, an image. That's who Paul is specifically talking about here. He's saying Jesus is a living, breathing, original picture of who God is. The full nature of God, the full character of God, the full heart of God. It's all perfectly reflected in Jesus because Jesus is God. Which means when you've seen Jesus, you've seen God. Jesus getting angry, flipping tables and clearing the temple. That's God taking his house back. Jesus reaching to a man who didn't think that anybody would ever reach for him and calling him friend. That's God. Jesus preaching hard truth that people didn't like and weren't crazy about. That's God. Jesus crying in the garden, asking for a plan B. That's God. Jesus walking on water. Telling storms to be quiet, tone it down. That's God. Jesus dying on a cross for you and me. That's God. Jesus coming back to life again. That's God. Jesus is God. Jesus is the image of God. Not a cheap reproduction. The real thing. The verse says he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Cults have been using that line for a long time to try and teach people that Jesus was the created son of God, but that he wasn't God the son. Jehovah's Witnesses will teach you that Jesus was created by God, and that's a very, very happy thing, but that he wasn't actually God. Here's the problem with that. If he's just like me and you, he's flawed and he can't help you or save you. And that, my friends, is not happy. It's not happy. The word firstborn in this verse is actually the little Greek word prototokos, which means preeminent one. It's actually a word that was assigned to royalty. Paul saying Jesus is a ruler. He's sovereign. He's a part of the king, not the prince. He's an actual king. He says it right here. He's the firstborn over all creation. He's the preeminent one. It means he always is, always was, and always will be because Jesus was God. Otherwise, Paul wouldn't be able to say it this particular way. Let me put it this way. Jesus rules over everything. Over everything. We've got this little cultural phrase. It's kind of moved on in the last four or five years. So if you're still saying that rules, you're out of date. Okay, just so you know. Got to cash in all your cool points, okay? But you've heard somebody say that before. Man, that rules. Paul is saying this with all of the passion of Scripture. Jesus rules. Jesus rules. Exclamation mark. Jesus rules. The Bible says he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Verse 16 carries on. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. They were created for him, and him is 
I know him and he are very different, but they were created for him and by him, and him is, there we go, okay, and Jesus is God, there we go, I'm tracking with you, okay, we're doing good, all right, and everything was created for him and by him, that means everything that you can see and the things you can't see, all thoughts, all creativity, all passion, all of nature. All rationality, all wisdom, all power, all honor, all glory, all graduations, all diplomas, all Batman outfits, all dreams, all goals, all happiness, all everything was created for him and by him because Jesus is the creator of the world. That's what this verse is saying. It's the next blank in your outline. Jesus is the creator of the world. Okay, I'm going to borrow this next section from a guy named Matt Woodley, who's a great pastor because he's way smarter than me, and I want to make sure I give credit where credit is due, okay? When we say Jesus created everything, we mean everything. But the problem is we tend to only look within about a six-foot radius of ourselves when we think Jesus created everything. Let me try and expand that out just a little bit. Scientists tell us there are 50 billion galaxies in the universe, 50 billion Each of those galaxies has an average of two to four billion stars inside of them. So take 50 billion, multiply it by two to four billion, and that will give you the total number of stars in the galaxy. One astronomer tried to make it out this way. He says, okay, take a box of salt, spill it on the ground, okay? Now take another 10,000 boxes of salt pour them all out on the ground, and each one of those grains is one of the stars in the Andromeda galaxy, which is only one of the 50 billion galaxies in the entire cosmos. Jesus made that. Some of you are trying to calculate, just don't even bother. It's a lot of zeros and a lot of salt, okay? Here's another example of the creative power of Jesus. A ruby-throated male hummingbird weighs less than a penny, okay? Its heart beats 21 times a second. It can beat its wings more than 60 times per second. And twice a year, this gutsy little thing that God made travels 2,000 miles south and then tracks 2,000 miles north and always comes back home every single time, two times a year. Why? Because God created this little radar system inside of his brain that shows him he can go almost to the other side of the world and back again just because he can. Because he's tough. And he doesn't even need video in the back of his seat to fly anywhere. He's tough. And his little heart just... Jesus. Do you know why Jesus made that? To give you a clue just how creative he is. You've got a hundred trillion cells in your body. Each one of them, scientists will tell you, is like a complex little city, like a little New York on a cellular level. And every single second, every day of your cell of your life, your cells are operating on millions of parts of interactions. The scientist by the name of Lewis Thomas, who's not a believer, actually wrote this about the cells that make up your human body. He said, if I could explain 
what goes on in a human cell, I would for the rest of my life hire a plane and fly it back and forth across the earth just to proclaim the incredible wonder of how and why a cell even works. Do you know why you are made up of a hundred trillion cells? So that you would go, wow. That's why you are the way you are. I've got no idea why people use the word boring when it comes to God. It doesn't make any sense to me at all. God is not boring. He's wildly creative, unbelievably predictable. He paints sunsets in the skies. Not that we can see them very often here, but He paints them in the skies to try and draw our attention away from ourselves. So we're not frustrated with the stuff around us. We just look... He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, and everything He rules over. The Bible goes on. I've got to hurry. He's before all things, and in Him all things hold together. I love that. Not only did He create it, but He holds it all together. I mean, Jesus is the one that makes your life stick together. Jesus is the one that can gather up the broken pieces and, and, and put, it, put order out of chaos. Jesus plans the flight patterns of the cosmos, and He watches my little tiny trailblazer drive to work while He's tracking the hummingbird and making sure that the cells are doing what they're supposed to do. And making sure that all the stars and all those galaxies just stay exactly where they're supposed to be. Tell you what this means. It means Jesus is the sustainer of the universe and the sustainer of my universe. That's the next blank. Not just the sustainer of the universe, but my universe as well. I mean, this is what this means. It means He holds me together when I fail. It means He picks me up when I fall. He means when it hurts really, really, really bad, He holds me and comforts me. I'll tell you something. You can't hold someone and comfort them unless you get close. Can we ditch this idea that God is just away? That God is out there watching us from a distance. It's a bad song and bad theology, okay? Bette Midler. Oh, there you go. Anyway. Some of you knew what I was talking about. Right. It means He gives me hope and perspective when I've got nothing left but the choice to, to trust Him. It means He's close. You know, I, let me just be as bold as I possibly can. I could chalk up everything in the universe and, and the way my life has gone. I could choke it all up or chalk it all up to chance. But the reality is this. I haven't got enough faith to be an atheist. I haven't got enough faith to believe that all of this is just somehow, there it was, there it is. See how it works for you. I do have enough faith to believe that Jesus holds my everything in the palm of His hand, that His love and justice can rule in my heart if that's a place where I will place my faith. He's before all things and in Him all things hold together. And then verse 18, He's the head and body of the church. Hope you'll notice something. We're going in a great big circle from where we started three weeks ago. 
If Jesus is the head of the church, it means this. Jesus is my pastor, and I am his minister. Okay? I love that. Jesus is my pastor. Always available. Wisdom is perfect. He can actually do something about my problems. He wants to show up and bless my wedding if that's what's happening to me. He'll show up and preside at my funeral when I'm kicked and gone and already home. I mean, he loves me in spite of myself. He is an amazing, amazing pastor because this is his heart. Jesus is the pastor of the second chance. So y'all got one chance, right? And you thought you blew it, which is why a lot of people reverted to modern therapeutic deism because they just need something to make them happy. This is something that should make you really, 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 really happy. Even though you've blown it once, Jesus is the pastor of the second chance and the third chance, and the fourth chance, and the fifth chance, and you just keep adding them up like you pour out boxes of salt trying to figure out how many stars there are. Jesus is the pastor of the second chance, and my role on earth is to be his ambassador and to minister to people in the tiny little things, because if you can go back in your mind three weeks, it's the little things that matter says he's the head and body of the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. This one is simple. It means this, Jesus is alive, okay? Not just alive on Easter, he's alive every day. That makes me happy. My God is not merely a cheap copy and he's most certainly not dead. He's the beginning, the commencement, the sovereign one who conquered death for this purpose. Last phrase, so that in everything he might have supremacy. The version on the wall behind me says preeminence, that he might be the center of absolutely everything, every hour of my day, every thought of my mind, every movement of my heart, that in everything he might have the supremacy. Some of you are like, why does that matter? Let me tell you why. Modern therapeutic deism wants me to have supremacy in all things. Here's the problem. Give me three days with that ideology and I will not be happy. Because there's no happiness when you're the center of your universe because you're only limited then to you. How's that working for you? Everything's perfect in my world, Grant. Really? The last time I checked, everybody in this room had one thing in common. We're all dying. But if you know He This is just the beginning, the commencement of something far, 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 far better. Amen? It's just the beginning. We haven't even started yet. Jesus still has all the good stuff waiting. There's a graduation gift. Following Jesus wants him to have supremacy in all things. And I'll tell you what. If you didn't get the purpose of this message or this series, it's pretty simple. Jesus is Lord, and that matters. It's the only thing that matters. In fact, I've learned this about myself. When Jesus is supreme in my life, then my life matters. That's the last blank. When Jesus is supreme, when he's the preeminent one in my life, then my life matters. Okay, so we're going to bring this in for a landing. Today, every single one of you graduated from today. Congratulations. I applaud you. It's good, all right? You can graduate, you graduated from today, so you can flip the tassel, smile, 
You made it. Good for you. You got through the first couple of days of June. Well done. If yesterday was lived for the glory of the one that I just described, it means this. You have a relationship with the Savior and the Lord, and that relationship is the sole thing in this world that will ever make you happy. So there you go. It's commencement day. And we're not going to walk an aisle or put on funny looking costumes. We're not going to have somebody shake our hand today. If you know Jesus, that will come someday. And I think it'll be more than a handshake. My question for you is, as we go into this summer together as a church family, are we ready to graduate into fully understanding just who He is and how our goal is to put Him in the center of everything so that we may not have supremacy, but so that He might have preeminence, rulership over everything and everyone that would dare to call Him my King and my God. Would you pray with me? Jesus, thank You for not being a cheap reproduction. Thank You for being the manifest presence of God. Father, thank You that You make everything, that You're holding it all together right now. Father, I pray in the name of Jesus that if there is anyone in this room or in Ferndale or in Sudden Valley who has never begun that relationship with He, Father, I pray right now that you would just move in alongside of them and that you would listen as their heart confesses sin to you, repents, asks for forgiveness for the past and hope for the future, knowing that's exactly what you want. Father, thank you for being our pastor. Father, thank you for your Son, for the Holy Spirit. Lord, we don't understand the mystery of how three can be one and one can be three. But Lord, we know in Jesus' name that it's true. So Lord, we commence the rest of our lives today giving ourselves wholly, fully, and completely to you. Father, we long for the day when we'll take that walk and we'll come to the gates of heaven. We'll see Jesus and we'll say, oh, you're beautiful. And you'll give us more than a diploma. You'll just simply wipe all the stuff away and say, well done good and faithful servant. You graduated. You're home. Now, 
you can really be happy. So Father, I do pray that you'd bless every graduate this week. Those graduating from high school, those graduating from college, those graduating with master's degrees, doctorate degrees, those graduating from a Tuesday to a Wednesday, those graduating from a crazy house to a messy car, to a soccer field and back home in time for bed. Father, I commit all of the graduates of Christ the King to you, and I thank you that you are the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, that all things were created through him and for him. And he's before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he's the head and body of the church, the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, that in everything he might be supreme. We pray these things in your name. All of God's graduates agreed together and said, Amen. Amen.